no, seriously, listen. If there's ever anything I can do for you, or more to the point, to you, you let me know, okay? Can you hammer a six-inch spike through a board with your penis? Not right now. A girl's got to have her standards. Welcome to the McQuaid Arcade Podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Biggs. I want to open the show with a question for you, Biggs. We're 10 years old. It's 1985. Was there anyone on the face of the planet cooler than Chris Knight, Val Kilmer's character, in this movie, in Real Genius? No way. And not only was he the the coolest guy that we'd ever seen, he was cool in such a different way than we had ever seen. Right? I mean, he was Val Kilmer, so there was just this natural coolness to him, but he was also super smart. He was funny in a, in a weird, crazy way. He would wear like bunny slippers and antennas on his head. And when one professor asked him why he has, why he's wearing that toy on his head, he says, because if I wear it anywhere else, it chafes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Chris Knight, the quintessential genius trickster. He was my idol growing up to be so smart, so clever, so competent, right? He's amazing. And arguably, this is Val Kilmer's finest role. Yeah, we need to do a quick Val Kilmer appreciation segment on the show here because we've got Top Gun, our favorite character in Top Gun. Yes, Iceman. Forget Maverick. We were definitely Team Iceman for sure. Team Iceman all the way. There's such a big thing now. They're everywhere. But between these two movies, Real Genius and Top Gun, I'm pretty sure Val Kilmer invented the fidget toy. Yes. Because if you think about between those two movies, he does this amazing trick it's Top Gun, right? Where he does the pen. Yes, he does the pen in Top Gun. And then in Real Genius, he's doing it with the coin, that knuckle roll where he can roll it right. down like a cascade. Oh, I love it. Willow. He was Mad Mardigan, the greatest swordsman that ever lived in that fantastic uh, fantasy movie. So good. He was absolutely incredible in Tombstone as Doc Holliday. I think like the most egregious Oscar snub in history, by the way, him not getting nominated for that role. He did, a, he did the uh, coin roll with a poker chip in that movie, too. I'm your Huckleberry. He played a good Bruce Wayne slash Batman in a not very good Batman movie. <laughs> that movie definitely stinks, but not because of him. He was he was good. He had some big shoes to fill, taking over for our Batman, Michael Keaton. But Real Genius is definitely where we first fell in love with Val Kilmer, and we want to talk about it. This is one of my all-time favorite movies. It has so much heart, such great characters, and an incredibly clever plot that really leans into the science. Real Genius is a brilliant science fiction comedy starring, as you heard, Val Kilmer and Gabriel Jarrett. It came out in the summer of 1985 and remains one of my defining movies. It's set on the campus of Pacific Tech, a science and engineering university that is a thinly veiled Caltech. Chris Knight, played by Val Kilmer, is a genius in his senior year working on a chemical laser project with the enterprising yet repugnant Dr. Jerry Hathaway. Mitch Taylor, played by Jarrett, is a new super smart student on campus paired up with Knight to work on the project. The movie opens up with this funny scene. We find out in a moment that it's a video we're being shown, but uh, demonstrating a new super secret CIA assassination weapon called Crossbow. It's basically a laser that can disintegrate anywhere anywhere in the world from space. And Jerry Hathaway, the professor at Pacific Tech, has been hired to develop the laser and he's using the research funding for it to have a new house built while making the students do the actual work. He never actually tells them why they're developing this laser. It's just a project for school. Hathaway is played by William Atherton. And we need to do another quick appreciation moment here because this guy has played some of the best 
like a-hole protagonists ever on film. He was Thornburg, reporter of Die Hard, and he was incredible as Walter Peck in Ghostbusters, right? Which, I mean, these are all three basically kind of the same role in these three <laughs> movies, but it's fine because he nails it. He just plays this character so well, so believably. It could be over the top, like a, a caricature, but he just nails it. Yes, he was born for this role. So he brings on a brilliant young student named Mitch and pairs him with Chris Knight, who Mitch has heard of and idolizes. There's a ton of hijinks along the way, of course, and Mitch and Chris solve the problem of how to power this space laser, only to find out that they have you know, created possibly the most terrifying weapon ever with this ability to secretly vaporize anyone from space. And they team up, team up with the other students on the project to sabotage the test of the laser by they redirect it and use it to blow up a giant container of basically Jiffy Pop, popcorn in Hathaway's new house that he's having built, <laughs> destroying it. Uh, of course, it's a very brief synopsis of the movie. There is a just such a great cast of characters and everyone feels real despite how wacky this movie gets at times. Right. They walk this line between believable and occasionally cartoonish so well. Absolutely. I love the idea that these characters feel believable as eccentric geniuses, yep. but never go over the top. So there's this, this really funny and, and wacky moment at the beginning of the movie where Mitch is at a science fair showing off his creation and he's explaining it to his dad. And he says, Dad, laser means light amplification by stimulated emissions of radiation. So this is coherent light. And the dad is like, oh, so it talks, right? I mean, it's so dumb and no one would ever actually be that dumb, but it works because it's hilarious and believable. Roger Ebert said in his review from August 1985, real genius allows every one of its characters the freedom to be complicated and quirky and individual. He's talking about uh, Martha Coolidge, the director. She gives her characters the freedom to be themselves. They don't have to be John Belushi clones or fraternity jocks or dumb co-eds. They can flourish in all their infinite variety as young people with a world of possibilities and a lot of strange, beautiful notions. Yes, I love this. They have real depth. They're legitimately quirky and interesting without trying too hard or feeling forced. So some of the main characters in the movie, we have Chris, Val Kilmer, Mitch, who is very believable as this straight-laced smart kid. Um, there's a scene where he calls home and he's crying to his just awful parents about how he wants to come home. And it really feels like this young kid who is totally out of his element and he's scared. Mm -hmm. Then there's Jordan, played by Michelle... Mayrink, uh, she was also Judy in Revenge of the Nerds, and she's great in this movie. Yet another performance, another character that could have just been a silly caricature that just comes off as so genuine. In his review, when he's talking about these characters and how they feel so quirky and individual, Roger Ebert says about Jordan, that's especially true of Jordan, a hyperactive woman student who talks all the time and never sleeps and knits things without thinking about it and follows Mitch into the John because she's so busy explaining something that she doesn't even notice what he's doing. It's a hilarious scene. She meets him and then we find out that night she knits him like an entire sweater because she didn't sleep. So uh, she busts into the bathroom and she's like putting it up to his shoulders and testing out the size while he's at the urinal trying to pee. It's a fantastic scene. I never sleep. I don't know why. I had a roommate and I drove her nuts. I mean, really nuts. They had to take away in an ambulance and everything. But she's okay now, but she had to transfer to an easier school. But I don't know if that had anything to do with being my fault. But listen, if you ever need to talk, you need help studying, just let me know because I'm just a couple doors down from you guys and I never sleep, okay? Uh, thanks. I will. <laughs> Are you done? Uh, I can't start. Because I'm here? I think so. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. Well, I have to go. Me too. <laughs> it's such a good scene. So good. There's also uh, Laszlo Hollyfeld, a mysterious bearded man who seems to be living in Mitch and Chris's closet. Roger Ebert describes him as a strange wraith-like bearded figure who disappears into the clothes closet and doesn't seem to be there when the door is flung open. Turns out he's a former student who cracked under the pressure and disappeared 
and he's been living at the school or I guess technically under it, mm-hmm. right? Like in the basement <laughs> ever since. In the steam tunnels. Yeah. And then there's Kent, of course. Chris is nowhere near as cool rival who is just hilarious. What about that time I found you naked with that bowl of jello? It was hot and I was hungry. <laughs> we would say that to each other all the time as kids, just constantly. <laughs> it's so goofy, but so it's so quotable. The central plot point is a puzzle about how to make this five megawatt laser. And in some movies, this could simply be a MacGuffin without any connection to reality, right? It would be totally reasonable that we never get into any of the specifics, but not here. The solid xenon halogen laser proposed and built by Chris in the latter half of the film, though surely in the realm of science fiction, was based on a real theory at that time. Real genius through consultant Martin A. Gunderson, who incidentally played the math professor in the movie, was later cited in an academic publication that detailed the scientific basis behind the laser. So this is Fajardo et al., 1987, and I actually geeked out pulled the paper it is totally impenetrable to me okay because it's a crazy high-level physics journal but there are some incredible passages like this one quote the analogy to the four-level laser is also appropriate for gas phase and liquid phase xenon chloride exiplexes note an exiplex is a complex form between an electron donor and an electron acceptor normally with one of them in the s1 state they conclude quote very large gain coefficients are to be expected in solids in contrast with the gas phase due mainly to their higher packing densities unquote so yeah there is some real science actually happening here oh so it talks right Is there any chance that Mitch is adopted? (laughs) That's what Professor Hathaway (laughs) says to the parents. Uh, So you know, I'm kind of picky when it comes to science fiction. I very much favor the so-called hard science fiction, which defined by our friends at Wikipedia as is a category of science fiction characterized by concern for scientific accuracy and logic. The best example, in my opinion, was the mind-blowing book, The Three-Body Problem, worth a read for anybody who likes science fiction even a little bit. It's challenging, but it is so mind-opening. And clearly there are multiple levels where this can work, and it really does depend on the audience to some degree and the context of the movie. Some movies it's just not going to fit in very well at all. But I feel like Elizabeth Shue, an incredible, intelligent, compelling actor who we love, okay, she had a beyond laughable, in fact, an absolutely cringeworthy set of lines in 1997's movie The Saint, also starring Val Kilmer, as it happens. There she played Dr. Emma Russell, brilliant electrochemist who discovers the secrets of cold fusion, but it was impossible for me to swallow. Here's one of her lines explaining cold fusion to a room full of white-coated scientists. Okay, quote, When positively charged deuterons are attracted to the palladium cathode, they cram together, and then millions and millions of them inside the cathode getting closer and closer, breathlessly, and then they fuse, and they create energy in the form of helium. Unquote. Wow. It makes me think of Luke Skywalker's line in The Last Jedi. Amazing. Every word of what you just said was wrong. You smush all the molecules together and they make science. <laughs> exactly. That would have been one of those lines where maybe just be better to just just cut that out. We don't need to say that. Ugh. I'm not saying that, you know. Anyways, let's compare that to the brilliant Chris Knight from Real Genius. Quote, It is possible to synthesize excited bromide in an argon matrix. Yes, it's an excimer frozen in its excited state. That's impossible. 
It's a chemical laser, but in solid, not gaseous form. Put simply, in deference to you, Kent, it's like lasing a stick of dynamite. As soon as we apply a field, we couple to a state that is radiatively coupled to a ground state. I figure we can extract at least 10 to the 21st photons per cubic centimeter, which will give one kilojoule per cubic centimeter at 600 nanometers, or one megajoule per liter, unquote. I mean, it's night and day. There's no, there's no comparison between the two. And, you know, it's so bad that while I usually will not stand for any speaking ill of Elizabeth's shoe on this show, uh, <laughs> I'll allow this because, um, yeah, she had just nothing to work with. Movie stinks. Let's talk a little bit about the music because that is such an important part of this movie. And that is something that really sticks with us. The movie opens with the iconic You Took Advantage of Me performed by Carmen McRae. And it really is a beautiful, jazzy, kind of a soulful song while they're showing the progression of weapons depicted by these cutaway diagrams and sort of patent applications. This was such a cool opening between the diagrams and images and the song. You know, the song is originally from, it turns out, a 1928 musical about a guy in the army. So it really was a cool, weird, deep, cut choice for the soundtrack and it fits so well well it's one of many great songs on the soundtrack and they really make this movie i'm falling by the comsat angels all she wants to do is dance by don henley and then one night love affair by brian adams i love brian adams as you know he is a canadian treasure and this is (laughs) one of my favorite songs of his and it's from one of my favorite scenes in this movie the pool party scene which i want to talk about uh, a little more in a bit There's also that incredibly catchy number one by Chaz Jenkel and perhaps the most memorable song that is connected with this picture, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, performed by Tears for Fears. I had totally forgotten. I hadn't seen this movie in a very long time and I'd forgotten what a great soundtrack it was. One Night Love Affair, All She Wants to Do is Dance, and Everybody Wants to Rule the World were all pretty big radio hits independent of this movie. And Everybody Wants to Rule the World is definitely, I think, the biggest If you tell your smart speaker of choice to just play 80s music, that will definitely come up at some point in the rotation. (laughs) I like that. Well, like so many of our favorite movies, this not only has an incredible soundtrack, but perhaps my favorite musical score of all time. It's brilliant, moving, and truly unique. I can't help but get the feeling that it is almost a character in a way. It conveys the sense of almost like the spirit of the muse working along with the characters to move things in their favor. It's really worth a careful listen. And my favorite part is when they're hacking the laser on the military base, or actually in the plane. It becomes this... I mean, really, it transforms the whole feeling into a competent caper film, and the score is just on point. I also love the seriousness that the actors bring to this part. It, it honestly goes from kind of being an offbeat comedy to feeling real intense. The whole thing feels like it could fall apart at any second, but they pull it off. One of my favorite moments in that scene is when Chris and Mitch are on the plane. They're on board the plane trying to sabotage the laser, and they're wearing lab coats. They look like all the other scientists and technicians around. And as this one scientist is getting off the plane, he kind of turns around and looks at Mitch and Chris because, you know, they have lab coats on, but they're clearly out of place. And Chris just looks at him and throws up his hands and goes, what? Yes. In this, like, really annoyed way. And the technician is just like, okay, okay, geez. And he, <laughs> and he just continues off the plane. And it's just this ultimate, like, confidence power move. Just act like you're supposed to be there. It reminded me of that video we saw about these guys who set out to prove that you could get in anywhere as long as you have a ladder with you. They did this amazing thing. These two or three guys, they had a ladder and they just carried the ladder and they walked into movie theaters, uh, backstage at places, (laughs) and nobody questioned them because of course they had had a ladder. This reminded me of that. And it was amazing. Like you said, it feels like 
a different movie all of a sudden in a very cool way. Early in the great career of Thomas Newman, he composed this score. So that's the composer Thomas Newman. He has this incredible legacy for somebody whose name I really have never heard before I looked into this. And it turns out you can't even find this score anywhere, Mm -hmm. which is so sad. But he's done a bunch of amazing movies. 1984, Revenge of the Nerds. 1985, Desperately Seeking Susan. Also in 85, Real Genius. And then in 87, he did three movies. Less Than Zero, The Lost Boys, Hello, and Light of Day. Later, okay, Thomas Newman went on to do The Shawshank Redemption. American Beauty, The Green Mile, Finding Nemo and Wally. Wow. How is he not a household name like John Williams? Wow. I honestly have no idea. It may have to do with his more modern style. It's a little more techno. Um, it's evocative music, but maybe less identifiable and maybe less memorable, although it, it really leaves a powerful emotional impression as, as we're discussing here. And he has had, are you ready for this? 15 Academy Award nominations. 14 of them were for best score. One was for best song, but has actually never won. I think my favorite scene overall is when Mitch figures out the secret of Laszlo's lair. It's this wonderful little subplot, but it's expertly executed. It keeps popping up as this bizarre mystery. And the first time I saw it, I was wrapped. A secret hidden world right before everybody's eyes. It's a perfect analogy to the complexities of the universe hidden in plain sight. The complex physics of a planetary satellite is simply the beauty of the moon on a cold, clear night. It's such a good scene. As I said, I love the the pool party. When Chris throws the tanning invitational, this Hawaii-themed pool party that he sets up in a lecture hall, complete with laser lights and music and a water slide, and he invites the girls from a nearby college, the Wanda Trussler School of Beauty, which is hilarious. One of the things I love about this movie is that it's never mean, right? It's never like Chris is like such a, like a good, kind guy. I mean, he's snarky and sarcastic and irreverent, but he could have been like, Hey, we're geniuses, and look at this bunch of beauty school dummies I, I brought over. But no, he's like genuinely excited, and uh, it's just all about fun and teaching Mitch to have a good time. And Mitch has such a great moment with Jordan in this scene. And again, these two potentially very stereotypy characters, right? They could have been in this incredibly wacky situation. This crazy pool party in a lecture hall comes off as real, and. Jordan shows up and Mitch asks her why she's not necking like everybody else, (laughs) which is a hilarious word that I'd kind of forgotten about. (laughs) And she very defensively says, I'm not gay. And you can just tell that like people have asked her stuff like that and made assumptions about her before because she's so different and that people just kind of don't get her, you know, when she's actually just showed up at the pool party to test this underwater rebreather that she's made (laughs) that she's all excited about that she wants Mitch to to help her with. The scene is great. It's funny and it's sweet and fun. And it's a great example of this tremendous amount of heart that is at the core of this movie. And that, along with everything else that's great about it, is what truly sets it apart and makes it such a classic. Part of the reason the 80s are so important to us is that they began the long, arduous process, one that is still in progress, I might add, of transforming nerds from something undesirable to something inspiring and aspirational. Being a nerd was decidedly not cool when we were kids. Unlike Wiz Khalifa and 2 Chains, 
this was certainly not the life we chose. Movies like Revenge of the Nerds, Weird Science, and perhaps most importantly Real Genius helped to redefine nerdiness as something useful and even desirable. Nerds could change the world, outsmart their perhaps brawnier opponents, and be heroes in their own rights. As Chris Knight said, Was it a dream where you see yourself standing in sort of sun-god robes on a pyramid with a thousand naked women screaming and throwing little pickles at you? No. Why am I the only person who has that dream? Actually, that's, that's not the right quote. The right quote was, When you're smart, people need you. You can use your mind creatively. And on that note, stay limber. For more fun from the 80s and beyond, be sure to follow at McQuaid Arcade on social media and sign up for our newsletter at McQuaidArcade.com. McQuaid Arcade is a McQuaid Media Production.